Well, we've been through a bit of a journey already in the morning, early in the morning, through early Christian history, a little bit about the story of grace, and uh, <clears throat> in the sermon we talked a little bit about the Reformation. There's a much bigger story than all I shared with you. Like I said, it takes semesters sometimes to unpack those things, but uh, when I was preparing this, this presentations at home this week, I was just thinking like what to take out, what to keep, what to take out. I mean, and, and you just very difficult to put this together when, when there's so much more, you know. But <clears throat> now we're going to look at the Adventist journey a little bit, uh, see how long we go. I don't know. We'll, we'll, I might get talking and I forget about, I've got my notes, but I don't usually keep close to my notes, but that's all right. All right, let's, let's bow our heads. Our gracious God, thank you so much that <clears throat> you bless us today with your presence and thank you that we could just spend a lot of time talking about your grace. And now we're going to think about what happened in our own church journey regarding the whole idea of grace, this concept of grace. And I pray that you will bless us because we had issues, we still have issues, we still sometimes do not understand this wonderful gift that you gave us. So I pray that you'll bless us today. Be with us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So <clears throat> the first presentation was about God's grace after the post-apostolic period. And um, we talked about uh, the, ch the centuries second to fourth, how the church brought in Greek philosophy and how it messed up everything. Uh, and until the Reformation, really, we've been totally messed up, okay, and Reformation was the first attempt trying to get rid of the influences of uh, Greek philosophy in Christianity. They did not manage quite well, but they did quite all right, actually, and then because of, oh, that's my next question, actually, so we're talking about, we're going, let me ask you a question, the 16th century Reformation, was it a success or a failure? You think it was success, really? So, so did the Catholic Church reform? So what is success or failure? <laughs> Wrong question. <laughs> well, the church is not reformed, right? Still the same Catholic church. So a reformation was sent to reform the Catholic church. Was it success or failure? <laughs> okay, yes, this is a tricky question. Well, reformation was, the, the answer is yes. To this, to this question, okay? <laughs> uh, well, it heralded return to the scripture, awakening, awakening of scriptural Christianity, certainly, access to the Bible. That's the first time when people begin to read the Bible in their own language in Germany and other places. Salvation by faith and grace alone, absolutely priests of all believers. The Reformation was necessary, was important, uh, it was a movement led by the Holy Spirit, I believe. They didn't get everything right. Uh, but there were lots of good things from the Reformation that came out of the Reformation. But also, it was a failure. It failed to return. The Reformation failed to reform the Catholic Church. The uh, Reformation actually splintered Christianity into multitude, multitudes of uh, denominations. By some estimates, there are about 40,000 denominations Protestant denominations in the world right now, 40,000, and, and one is created every month or something like this, or even 
much greater rate. So, so we've got splintered Christianity. Um, the Reformation, we often think that uh, Luther did a great job, but how did the Reformation happen in Germany, for example? Uh, so just give, me a little, give you a little example. Germany was divided into different provinces, each ruled by its own prince. So Prince Frederick was the ruler of the province where Luther was. And Prince Frederick decides to become a Protestant, so everybody in that province becomes a Protestant. In the other protest, uh, the provinces, there were Catholic princes who decided to stay Catholic, so everybody stayed Catholic in those provinces. So imagine the situation. One day you come to your church, it's a Catholic church. The next Sunday you come to your church, it's a Protestant church. Okay, so mentality stayed the same. Um, medieval methods, uh, Protestants also persecuted people, just like Catholics. Uh, some, there, was, there was the kind of era. Uh, Reformation introduced a lot of a lot of wars and troubles and problems. The religious wars of the 16th, 17th century were fought over religion. Protestantism versus Catholicism and Anabaptists mingled in the whole middle of it and people fought and so on. So the message of grace was really muddled. It was just kind of almost died through some periods of history. So Reformation was a great start, amazing start, but... But uh, Reformation needed to continue. And then there was another huge blow to Christianity. I mean, amazing blow that really damaged Christianity terribly. It was 18th century Enlightenment. So basically, uh, Enlightenment thinkers, they were looking at Christianity. And they're just thinking like, Christianity is terrible. This is just bankrupt. Look what's happened. Christians are just fighting among themselves. They just can't live peacefully. They, they have to, everybody has to be right. And they just fight, fight, fight. And people die and so on. And they said, Enlightenment thinkers, they said, and this is movement of 17th and 18th centuries. They basically said, religion has no answers to the problems of humanity. There's one answer to the problems of humanity, and it is human reason. Okay, so human reason is going to be uh, it, what we're going to follow. And human reason will lead us into a golden age. Um, so remember René Descartes, who said famously, I think, therefore I am. Cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. So reason turned within, no God, I'm not interested in God, and so on. It's, it's my reason that's going to be now ruling over everything, and we don't need to worry about religion. So let us, but this is a very important point, especially the second Point, let us explore a little bit what did enlightenment teach and this is important now what did enlightenment teach about human nature do you remember what well, let me just brief review okay right here so bible teaches that human nature is corrupt right that's what we studied this morning in the other church we are completely corrupt we cannot reach to god god saves us by his grace and it was reinforced uh, message during my uh, presentation. So we are in need of God's grace. We cannot obey to get to heaven. Through, we cannot get to heaven through obedience. God is the only savior. If I obey, that means I am savior too. Somehow I'm saving myself through obedience. Uh, this is not the biblical message. Yahweh Ira, God is the provider. Salvation is not a reward for obedience, but it's entirely by God's grace. So obedience is a result of salvation rather than a ground of salvation. That's a very important difference. 
We obey because we are saved, not obey because to, to be saved. All right? Many Adventists sometimes think that we need to obey to be saved. No, we are saved, therefore we obey. So obedience does not get us to heaven. It is, it is our result of salvation rather than ground of salvation. I could, if we have time, we'll go through uh, one chapter in Steps to Christ and you will see this stuff. Post-apostolic Christianity introduces, embraces Greek philosophy and Greek philosophy had very high elevation of high thoughts about human nature. We can do it, all right? Enlightenment was a result of that too. So we are good, we can do it, we can follow the example of, good example of Jesus. There will be Christians who borrow from Greek philosophy and Christ is our example of obedience. He did it, we can do it, okay? Then the Catholic Church kind of tried to combine Bible with that early emphasis with Greek philosophy, and we're just weakened. So we just need help, okay? If we get baptized into Catholic Church, then God gives us infusion of grace inside, and that enables us to do good works. And our good works are really good works, so when we obey, God has to reward us. So that was the message of this morning when I talked about it. So this is the Catholic Church. So for them, good works are incredibly important because, because you collect your merit until God will decide, yes, you're worthy to come to, uh, to, come to uh, heaven. And in Catholic Church actually teaches perfection or sinless perfectionism uh, to some extent. Uh, they don't emphasize it, but it is part of the package that you need to be as good as possible. And those who reach that level of great perfection, they become saints. Okay, and then you can pray to them if you're a Catholic. And then Reformation came, and Reformation took us back to the Bible, that human nature is corrupt uh, in such a way that we are unable to earn our salvation. There's nothing we can do. So that's basically the bottom line of the Reformation, that God provides us with his salvation, that we do not earn salvation. And then we've got splintering of Christianity. Catholic Church is not reformed. Uh, religious wars, enlightenment comes in. And Enlightenment says, yes, human nature is in excellent shape. We can do it. Reason is what's going to save us. And we are going to uh, bring the golden age. In other words, the Enlightenment was a total return to early Greek philosophical thinking of Plato, of Aristotle, and, so and Socrates before them. So basically, Enlightenment taught that only reasonable things uh, can be accepted, so miracles if Jesus walk on the water, that's not reasonable. We've never seen anybody walk on the water. That's, we, we, don't, we can't reject it. We, we have to reject it. Virgin birth, impossible. Resurrection, impossible. Uh, we just, here we are. We are pretty good. Okay? Our nature is good. We can save ourselves. So that's basically was the message of enlightenment. Okay? So grace alone of the Reformation became substituted for reason alone. That's why we call it the Enlightenment. Is another name for Enlightenment is the age of reason. Because now we human beings can save the world. Of course, this was, a, uh, this was a sad situation for humanity because when First World War occurred, suddenly we realized as humanity that reason can actually did not lead us to a golden age. But at that stage, in 18th century, 17th and 18th century, there was, a, there was an age of optimism. We can do it. We can obey. We can, do, we, can, we can lead the golden age. We can do it ourselves. We don't need God. And Christianity responded in various ways to, um, to uh, the age of enlightenment. 
One way it was deism, that was the kind of a quasi-religious movement of the thinkers. They, would, they didn't reject the existence of God like later Enlightenment thinkers did. But the early Enlightenment thinkers that would say God exists, but he's not interested in humanity. So he left and left us alone here and we can do it because we've got good brains and, and so on. All the fathers of America, uh, the founding fathers of America were deists actually, Thomas Jefferson and, and others, that they believed America is this, will bring this golden age and, and so on and so on. And of course, it's a bit of an issue. So deism was one. Another one is liberal theology, where Christian thinkers attempted to embrace Combine Enlightenment thinking with Christianity, and, and of course this is, this is not possible, but that's what they were trying to do. The liberal theologians rejected the existence of miracles. Jesus was just a good man. Uh, he was a good example to us, and we can follow his example, and he is going to, by, by following Jesus and his teachings, we can actually bring golden age and so on. So that's liberal theology. And of course liberal theology became completely bankrupt Late earlier in twentieth, in middle to, to middle twentieth century, there's one more reaction that I do not have here on the screen. It's fundamentalism, that uh, some Christ Christian groups they really went within to protect them, so they circled the wagon, so to speak, and they really became entrenched in this traditional kind of uh, Christianity. That, and as Adventists, we're caught in all of that uh, battle. But this is the essentially the general context within Adventism, within which Adventism was born. Adventism was born in early 19th century, still during the age of optimism, as far as human nature is concerned. That we can do it, we can obey, we, can, we will be okay, all right, because we are not that terribly uh, damaged. And William Miller was a deist for a part of his life before he became a Baptist. Um, and, and I believe that that kind of positive thinking about human nature was, uh, had powerful impact upon our Adventist uh, pioneers. So basically in one way, they believed that all doctrinal issues could be solved by human reasoning. And that's true. We can actually look at doctrinal issues but, and, and solve them with the reason. But uh, for some reason, they, they kind of felt we need to explain all the, have all the answers to everything, you know. And we can't, as Christians, have all the answers. But that was the kind of mentality that we need to really explain everything. And early pioneers from my studies, from, from what, I, what I discovered, had very optimistic understanding of human nature. That we can actually accomplish a lot by, by being good people. That was the general ethos in a society around them. That was the society within the, which they were living. Um, it was not so much with Ellen White as such, it's more with other, other pioneers. And they, they all believe that they can return to the Bible, purity of the Bible, Joseph Bates and James White. We can really bring back this biblical Christianity. But they were deeply influenced, in my opinion, by the general societal feeling, ethos of, of positivity, of that we as humans really... Uh, our work count. So they did have a positive view of humanity. And I guess you probably guess now where this is all uh, leading. Adventist history can be divided into three periods. So number one period I call early Adventism. 
This is 1840s to 1880s, and we'll talk about this in a moment. Then historic Adventism, which I've, in my classes, had a name for it as Middle Adventism, or the one that is in the middle between modern period and early period, so it's called historic Adventism. I decided eventually to call it historic Adventism because there are Adventists today who call themselves historic Adventists. Uh, they want to go back to that, not the earliest Adventism for various reasons, but to that period right there, which is called historic Adventism. And now the third period is contemporary Adventism, 1952 uh, present. So that's basic uh, division. So let me talk first about that first period of uh, history of Adventism, 1840s to 1880s. This was the period where Adventist pioneers attempted to develop Adventist identity. Who are we as Adventists? The Adventist pioneers came from all kinds of churches. Ellen White came from Methodist Church. And, and by the way, it's good to study Methodism of the 17th and 18th century Methodism to understand uh, what Ellen White's thinking, uh, because she brought a lot of stuff from that particular era of Methodism into Adventism. Then we've got Joseph Bates and James White, who were both ordained as ministers in Christian Connection, which was a, a group of people who attempted to completely go back to the Bible and uh, just bring back whatever they see in the Bible. And they both rejected the doctrine of the Trinity as a result because they, 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 it was unreasonable. You know, Trinity was unreasonable. How can you have one God and three didn't make any sense? One God, three faces type of thing didn't make any sense to the early pioneers. And they rejected the, this kind of understanding of uh, Trinity. But uh, they kind of comparing themselves to other denominations. And they're looking at, okay, what can we, what, what are distinctives that we are different than every body else? And they took the traditional doctrines, Christian doctrines for granted. They just, yeah, okay, we're Christians, we, yeah, salvation, God gives us, Jesus died on the cross, but they, they never talked about this. Within the first 40 years of our existence, it was almost like early post-apostolic Christianity, where uh, what, does, what is the role of Christ, okay, what is the role of grace? They do not talk much about those issues in that first, first period. Uh, they, they held very optimistic nature of humanity. Uh, we can do it. We can obey, much like Catholic Church to some extent. Uh, the focus was on the law, okay? the Ten Commandments, observance of the Ten Commandments, particularly the Fourth Commandment. That made us completely different than anybody else. So we observe the Fourth Commandment. We are Christians in different way and so on. So that's what distinguishes us from other people. Obedience to Ten Commandments was absolutely possible. We can do it. We can show the world that we can obey the commandments. We have the ability to obey. Thus, we can obey. We need to obey to show the world that commandments can be obeyed. Uh, so for the first 40 years of our existence, Adventists preached the law. That's basically the only message we had to offer to the world. We preach the law, the law, uh, the law. That, that's it. And we believe that one day God will, during the investigative judgment, he will take a look at us and see how well we obeyed. And on that basis, how many good things we've had uh, in our pockets. And on that basis, God will grant us salvation or we won't be there. Okay, so 
The problems were compounded in this early period by the understanding who Jesus was. So like I said just a moment ago, they rejected the uh, Trinitarian doctrine. They rejected the idea that Jesus was God. Uh, Christ for them, except for Ellen White, although she never spoke about those issues in that period, but for people like Uriah Smith, Christ was, and Uriah Smith was one of the major pioneers, as you know, uh, for him, Jesus was a created being. He was not embarrassed about saying that and teaching this, and he taught until the day he died in the early 1900s that Jesus was a created being. So, and and uh, James White, Joseph Bates, and other pioneers, they all actually accepted uh, the anti-Trinitarian belief. Um, he was divine, Jesus was divine, but he was not God. Uh, later on, they thought he was generated, not just created, generated, but certainly he was, he was not God. So you, you see this kind of thing. You've got diminishment of Christ in early Adventist teaching and enlargement of the commandments. The law is enlarged. Trinity was just not acceptable to reason, and therefore we, we just have to reject it. Okay? Uh, but Jesus was divine. He was somewhere there, but he was not that important, really. He did for us what he needed to do, so we converted, and now we have to obey the law. We have to, after conversion, we just obey, obey, obey. That was basically the message. So, so we could say that this early Adventist period really reflected the early post-apostolic period I talked about this morning. It was influenced by philosophy, uh, by general philosophical Outlook, ethos of the society at the time, which basically taught that human nature is uh, not damaged by the fall. We can obey, we, we can do this, and it was embraced by Adventist Christians. So this is a lithograph that was um, published by or commissioned by James White. It was called The Way of Life to explain the Adventist understanding of uh, salvation. And it was published in 1873. Okay, so you, see, you can see what is central here on this picture. It's the law and the commandments. The tree of life is there. And commandments are hanging right there on, on the thing. Jesus is kind of to the cross, much smaller. Look, look, commandments are big, the tree. Jesus is very small. On the right, he was necessary to, for our conversion, but basically that's it. And, and you can see the holy city in there. So this is basically how you see Cain and Abel there, you see, you see the sanctuary there, you see the Garden of Eden on the left, and so on. And uh, this basically how Adventists represented during evangelistic meetings. Yes? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> what is the eye? Uh, this eye of providence. Uh, it, was, it was a philosophical idea. It uh, came from enlightenment. And, and they kind of incorporated this, that God is providentially looking all around uh, the world, all around development of Adventism. So you see that commandments play a huge role here. That was 1873. So huge, amazing, important role in this whole thing. Then in 18, 1876, they got quite a flag for the eye. So they uh, redid the picture. And this is a very similar picture without the eye. But you once again, you see that uh, the law and the commandments, obedience, this is the tree of life, they play important role in, for Adventism. We just have to obey, you know, obey. Jesus, yes, he's there, but, but obedience is something uh, that we do. The result of this, all of this, was almost Christless 
religion, hard-going legalism. Ellen White later wrote, uh, during the later period in the early 90s, she wrote, as a, as a people we have preached the law until we were dry as the hills of Gilboa that had neither dew nor rain. You see, so she recognized that we as Adventists, we had a problem. So we needed reformation. You see, in, in various ways, as Adventist church, we mirrored the history of the church. Many, many ways. In our own history, we mirrored what happened in the history of the church. So we needed the reformation. And the reformation came during the second period of Adventist history. And that is called historic Adventism. So that's, that's when the reformation came. Ellen White embraced it heartily. Not everything that came through it in that reformation. But, but she was very much in favor of what was happening. There was two-pronged exploration that occurred during that period of time. First of all, there was discussion on Christ's righteousness, okay? Because up until now, we've got my obedience, my righteousness. Now we're talking about Christ's righteousness. I'm going to talk about this in a moment. And then we've got exploration into Christ's nature, both human and divine. So Adventists begin to talk about who is Christ. And we've got two Two trends developing within Adventism at that stage. One is emphasizing humanity of Christ. One is emphasizing divinity of Christ. And it had repercussions on understanding of salvation. Very important. So, so first of all, we'll explore this uh, Christ righteousness versus our righteousness. Uh, there's two young people on the left. Their names you probably heard if you know something about Adventist history. E.J. Wagoner and A.T. Jones. They were editors of the Science of the Times, and they were living in the liberal California. Okay? Everything that comes to California is liberal in America, and it was already then during that time. And they began to kind of recognize, both of them began to recognize that, okay, we're preaching law, we're preaching law, we're preaching law, we've lost Christ. We've lost grace. We've lost righteousness. We, nobody's talking about grace anymore. We're all teaching about obedience to the law. And they begin to preach about Christ's righteousness, that we do not have our own righteousness, but Christ gives us his righteousness. So they are following on Luther's idea, what I presented this morning in church service, that we get this, and it was that kind of same difference, that of God or from God, this is what I was talking today in, in, in uh, service. And here we have the same kind of difference. So they talk about Christ's righteousness that covers us, G.I. Butler and his a group of people. He was the president of General Conference during the 80s, and he was really hardcore person for our righteousness. So Christ's righteousness versus our righteousness, and they published. Uh, those guys are talking about Christ, our righteousness, and G.I. Butler publishes a booklet, our righteousness. We have righteousness. We can obey. We can reach heaven through our obedience, and so on. And there were developed between those two between those two groups. So uh, we have righteousness, we don't have righteousness. Now, and this is what I spoke about this morning. When you consider that we're not that damaged by sin and we have our righteousness, that means our obedience matters as far as salvation is concerned. When you don't have your righteousness, that means obedience doesn't matter, but you get your Christ righteousness covers you. So this was basically uh, they a message. So we need to give ourselves to Christ, they preached, so that Christ's righteousness will cover us. Uh, and, and that's basically the most important thing that we need to do. 
and there was big opposition. And you probably heard about, about uh, Minneapolis General Conference when they really, those two worldviews came to head. They began to fight. But Ellen White was listening. James White died in 8081. And as soon as he died, she basically two years ago commissioned another picture. Look at this picture. It's also the Christ, the way of life. Okay, similar kind of lithograph, but what is the center now? Christ is the center. Where do you see the law here? You can see Mount Sinai at the back, but that's it. Okay, so you see this is at the back. Christ is the center, and you see the shadow of the cross from the Garden of Eden. Okay, so this was not existent before in previous pictures. All right, and, and the way to heavenly uh, city is not through obedience to commandments as they were central, it's now through the cross of Christ. So this, this is the picture that Adventists began to use in 1880s, and Ellen White commissioned this, this thing. What was the reaction of traditional Adventists? It was hostile, if we can say the least. It was definitely hostile. Uh, G.I. Butler led the opposition, and he was speaking about our righteousness. He published um, he believed that if we emphasize Christ's righteousness, then, then what about obedience? How do we obey? How, obedience to commandments is compromised. And who are we as Adventists? We are obedient to commandments and so on. So they're the fighting. And as I just said, the war came to the head during the GC General Conference in 1888. Nevertheless, Ellen White embraced this aspect, okay, emphasis on this aspect of Wagoner and John's message. She traveled with them throughout the late 80s, 1880s and early 1890s. She traveled with them all around America to preach the message of justification by faith. God's grace was beginning to have an impact in our own denomination. Unfortunately, unfortunately, and this is a very sad unfortunate, um, Wagoner and John's became obsessed with human nature of Christ. Uh, they got it also from some other evangelical thinkers. I don't have time to explore this right now. But like Christianity of the uh, early ages, as, we, as I was talking this morning, they kind of embraced this philosophical understanding of Christ. And they, be, they began to teach and by the way, both of them, Wagon and Jones, they were not Trinitarian. Wagon and never became Trinitarian. Uh, Jones became Trinitarian after he left Adventist Church. They both left the Adventist Church eventually. But uh, they began to emphasize Christ's divine nature. Yes, he was divine, but that's not important. We can uh, put it aside. Instead, they focused on human nature of Christ. They began to teach that Christ's nature was exactly the same like ours. Okay, that, the, that his sinful nature was like our sinful nature, and he had all the same sinful passions and sinful tendencies as we do as human beings. So why did they emphasize this? Because they also realized that if they emphasize too much Christ's righteousness, what happens to obedience? And they were trying to figure out what are they going to do? How are they going to um, bring the obedience back to Adventism? So, so they figured out this system. That until the moment of conversion, Christ's righteousness covers us. But after conversion, 
we have to obey. So up until conversion, everything is forgiven, everything is forgotten, God forgives us, covers us with righteousness. After conversion, now we have to obey. And now they went even further than people before. They said, okay, Jesus obeyed, he was our perfect example, and you can see the uh, this is echo of uh, philosophic Christianity from early church, uh, early centuries. Jesus obeyed. He was exactly like us. Therefore, we need to obey because if he obeyed, he was exactly like us. We can obey and we can be like him. And this was the birth of what we know today as uh, last generation theology. It was a birth of the idea that we need to become sinless before Jesus comes uh, to this earth. Because if Jesus was able to do this, then we can do this too. Um, so that came at a huge cost to the divinity of Christ. Uh, basically, you never, you don't need Christ divine. You just follow human Christ, you know. Uh, and I could say a lot. If you're interested more in, in these themes, I've got a book here for you that you can buy. And it's, it's really good stuff that we produced at the seminary uh, in Berlin Springs when I was teaching there. So several of us put the book together on this very issue. So I don't have much time to, to go through this today. Uh, but anyway, divinity of Christ is de-emphasized. Obsession becomes perfect obedience. And you can see this from about 1880s. And by the way, this idea of nature of Christ, that Christ was exactly like us, did not exist in Adventism, the earliest Adventism. That emphasis was created during the 1880s and brought into the church by Wagoner and Jones. Ellen White did not accept this, by the way. She embraced the message of Christ's righteousness. She did not embrace the message of sinless perfectionism. She never taught that idea. But that idea, that kind of thing became a ethos of Adventism uh, from about 1900s where uh, a gentleman by the name Emil Andreasen became a foremost Adventist theologian and he was until the 40s, 1940s, he was a proponent on this, this kind of theology that God depends on us to prove to the world that commandments can be perfectly obeyed. And in the last days, God will have a special group of people who will be perfectly obedient to the commandments of God. Okay? And unless God has a group of people like this, Jesus will not be able to come to this earth. So suddenly in that theology, uh, second coming was thoroughly dependent on our behavior. And it resulted in incredible legalistic approach to the doctrine of salvation. This whole idea of nature of Christ was a new element, as I said, and, and we just need to follow human Christ, just like in philosophy, Greek philosophy, enlightenment. We need to follow human Christ in order to be saved and, and completely reflect his, um, his, uh, what, what his accomplishments. So this is the teaching about Christ's fallen nature. Uh, to this day, there are people within Adventism who actually emphasize that what kind of nature Jesus had. I remember one situation, uh, my father has a person similar, of similar background in his church and one day I came from America for our furlough and I preached a sermon in my father's church and this guy came to me, I haven't seen him for some like five, six years, and he comes to me after the sermon at the door and says, Darius, I need to talk to you about Christ's nature. Didn't even say hello, you know, <laughs> he wanted about Christ's nature. And I've had this situation several times. 
um, I preached similar sermons to, to what I preached today and I, in America, and I had people come to, but I need to talk to you about nature of Christ. You know, and they're all interested about nature. And the moment you find out that people are interested about nature of Christ, which is not an Adventist idea at all, you know that there is an agenda, that people want to lead you with something. That, that okay, if Jesus had the same nature as I did, I do, then I, he obeyed, so I can obey. I can obey commandments perfectly like he did. Because of this, because of this issue, the God's grace theme suffered a very, very serious blow in Adventism. So historic Adventism does not have much time for God's grace. God's grace is applied to pre-conversion time. After conversion, we need to obey because otherwise God will not come back to this earth. It's a serious issue in America today. I'll talk about this. I'll talk about this later. So uh, in this kind of system, it is once again we humans that become a center, uh, a center of the salvation story rather than Christ. You know, because the emphasis is on our obedience, our sinless obedience, rather than what Christ accomplished uh, for us. So, so that was kind of a problem. And Christ in this kind of system is once again no longer the only savior of humanity. You know, remember the Bible talks that Jesus, Old Testament, New Testament, Jesus, God is the only savior of humanity. In New Testament, Christ is the only savior. There are no two saviors. It's not him and me saving together ourselves, you know. Christ is the only Savior. So once again, God's amazing grace. We, we, we get this beautiful message about Christ's righteousness and it's muddied up by, by discussion on Christ's nature. Uh, and this was kind of unfortunate. Once again, this Greek philosophical thinking entered Adventism. Uh, if, and it would, destroy, it would destroy Adventism if not for a, not for a wonderful Wonderful something, okay? God's grace suffers a serious blow in Adventism. But fortunately, fortunately, at the same period, very same period, we've got another exploration into Christ's nature. And it's happening of all places. It's happening in Australia. In Australia, <laughs> I find this truly providential. You know, truly providential. At the very time when our denominations was focused on itself again, on ourselves and our perfection, uh, God was working with us to regain focus on him, namely on Christ's divine nature. Already mentioned to you uh, before that most of our founders were anti-Trinitarian, they opposed Trinitarian teaching, mainly because of misunderstanding. The way they understood Trinity was like... God is Jesus, Jesus is the Holy Spirit, uh, Jesus is God, and basically they're just one person with three different kind of uh, modes of operating, and they really disliked it, they rejected this, they didn't want to talk about Trinity at all. So uh, Uriah Smith, like I said, was anti-Trinitarian until the day he died. Same with Wagoner. But serious consideration as far as doctrine of the Trinity uh, of divine nature did not happen until Ellen White came to Australia. So she came to Australia and she spent a decade of 1891 to 1900 in Australia. And while in Australia, Ellen White engaged in a deep study of Christ's nature, divine nature. Uh, partly it was spearheaded by meetings in Melbourne. Uh, Prescott, W.W. W. Prescott, one of the early Ad Adventist evangelists, 
he was uh, making, he, he conducted a big tent evangelism in Armadale, which is a suburb of Melbourne. And this was a center of deeply Anglican uh, community. There were lots of good, solid Anglican people living there, and Adventists wanted to appeal uh, to that particular group. So they erected a tent, and Prescott is going to invite everybody, but he needs to appeal. He would not, and so he decided that he's going to study Christ's nature. So <clears throat> he began to really going deeply into the Gospel of John. And when you go deeply into the Gospel of John, Gospel of John offers a lot of insights as far as personal, divine personality of Christ. And he centered his entire uh, evangelistic series on the doctrine of Christ, who Christ is. And, Ellen, and in between the meetings, they had a Bible study. Ellen White was attending his, his um, evangelistic series and, and they deeply engaged themselves very deeply into study of who Christ is. So they're moving away from divine, from human nature of Christ, as was Wagon and John's. They're studying divinity of Christ. And it is in Australia that Ellen White composes The Desire of Ages. So this was, this was a, a very important publication because for the first time in this book, she makes a statement that Christ in Christ, life was original, unborrowed, and underived. Okay, important. Very important statement. Christ was life original, unborrowed, and underived. As it happened, Ellen White was also studying the writings of non-Adventist teachers. She had a whole library of non-Adventist authors that she utilized. And one of those authors was John Cummings. John Cummings was a Presbyterian, Scottish Presbyterian uh, theologian living in Scotland, and he wrote a book uh, on the Gospel of John. And I don't know why I had that book. And that statement, almost similar, appears in that book. And John, uh, why did she have his book? Because he was very virulent anti-Catholic, so probably that caught her attention. But in that book, he, he explores the divinity of Christ, and, and he basically makes a statement like this. In Christ, life was original. Do I have this? Yes, I have this. Okay, in Christ was life original, unborrowed, and underived. Now, so she writes Desire of Ages, and this is not the only place in Desire of Ages where statements like this appear, uh, because there are lots of statements that affirm Christ's full divinity. And that book is, the manuscript of the book is being shipped to America to be published in Adventist Publishing House. When it gets to America and people read Desire of Ages, they go like, ah, what's happening? What was she learning in Australia? Terrible, you know? And they kind of hit the panic button big time. So, so they, they begin to read this and kind of like, wow, this is amazing. What's happening here? One of them was Emel Andreasen, who came when Ellen White returned to uh, America in 1900, he went to her house and demanded to see the manuscript because he did not believe that Ellen White could write those words herself. He went to her, she was very kind to him, allowed him to see everything that she's written and it was in her handwriting. In Christ was life original, unborrowed and underived. So since that time, since the Time in Australia, since 1888, and time in Australia, Ellen White constantly affirmed full divinity of Christ. That Christ was fully divine, co-equal divinity of Christ. You know, and I'm not surprised. When you begin to talk about Christ's righteousness, who is Christ, and what he accomplished for us, the next discussion is, 
who he is. And that's what happened in the early church. Who is he? Okay? And, and, and these this two discussions are very much going together. He accomplished his righteousness, but who is he? He's fully divine. And Ellen White begins to teach, um, teach Trinity, essentially, in Australia already, okay, while she's in Australia. So she publishes this statement. In 1895, in Science of the Times, she's in Australia when this statement is published. A complete offering has been made. Okay, complete means you've got nothing to add. Our obedience does not add into what Christ accomplished. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, not a son by creation as were the angels, not, not a son by adoption. You see, she is dealing with philosophical ideas here. By adoption, but a son begotten the express image of the father's person and in all the brightness of his majesty and glory. Now this amazing statement. One equal with God in authority, dignity and divine perfection. And she's got several statements like this that basically, uh, basically mean that Christ was fully God. Okay, so so I've got one one more here. In Him dwelled the fullness of Godhead bodily. Okay, and she talks a lot about Christ being fully divine. So we've got these two emphasis now uh, that are actually taking us, fortunately, by God's grace alone, towards the right direction as a church. So Christ's righteousness, that we are covered by Christ's righteousness, that was mean our police, okay, Recog uh, recognition who we are before God, that we really have nothing to offer. Um, we cannot obey perfectly, although Wagon and Jones try to make it into perfect obedience, but, but within Ellen White's writings, we find that God's grace covers us, not just up to the moment of conversion, but all the time, throughout the entire life. And another emphasis of Christ's co-equal divinity, that Christ is God. So like I said, any kind of discussion on Christ's righteousness invokes immediately discussion on Christ's identity. So when you recognize the full testimony of the scripture, we cannot not recognize Christ as God. He is, he is God. So we as a church from the beginning of the 1900s began to bit by bit recognize uh, who is Christ. And because of this, we are suddenly, uh, from the beginning of the 19th century, even though we've got this perfectionistic ideas deeply entrenched in Adventism, we've got another idea developing that is emphasizing God's grace. Okay, so this, this, this began with this two, two kind of different twin emphasis on who he is, who Christ is, and, and about his righteousness. So, these ideas form the foundation for the third period in Adventism. This is what I would call contemporary Adventism that began in 1950s. I call it Adventism's turn to grace. Okay, this is the, when it began in earnest. Why? This is not probably the time to talk about this because I could be here for a long time. Why did I choose this date? There's another story. Uh, in it. So within contemporary Adventism, from the 1950s to present, we've got two contemporary trends. One is grace-oriented Adventism, and if you would read carefully 28 Fundamentals, it's, it's definitely grace-oriented Adventism. It's a wonderful expression of, um, of biblical faith. But we also have historic Adventism. It's a minor group. It's a continuation of uh, of that perfectionistic teaching, and it is that group that forms the 
foundation for anti-Trinitarianism within Adventism. But basically, theologically speaking, that anti-Trinitarianism, modern anti-Trinitarianism, is born within, within the historic Adventism, within that particular uh, group. So by the 1950s, Adventism has fully, is fully embracing Trinitarianism. By the 1950s, when Adventists discuss various issues with the evangelicals, they present themselves as Trinitarian. So it took us about 50 years to really make sure that it entered into our ethos, Adventist ethos, that we are a Trinitarian movement. We also recognize human inability. We embrace the teaching that Protestant teaching, sola gratia e fides, which means by grace alone and by faith alone, we begin to really understand this within Adventism and embracing this reformational uh, teaching about salvation. And we moved away as attempted to move away from perfectionism. When you believe that Christ's righteousness covers you all throughout life, your entire life, then there's no room for any form of perfectionism. So those three elements here, they kind of uh, took us back into the embrace of uh, grace. All right, so, in, so grace becomes, once again, from 1950s, God's grace becomes really important uh, for Adventists. And uh, in 1980, the Adventist Church, the Biblical Research Institute and General Conference, they published a document known as Dynamics of Salvation. And it's a most wonderful document. It begins with uh, the section of it. It begins with humanity. That's the first section. Humanity, desperate need for God and his grace. You know, we're talking about grace. And this is, this is coming from General Conference and, and Biblical Research Institute. First, first section, we are in desperate need. All right? We, can't, we have nothing to offer to God. We cannot earn our salvation through our obedience. We are in desperate need of uh, God's salvation. The second chapter was divine initiative. That it is God who does it all in us. Does it for us? It does in us. Okay? So it is God who works for us and in us. And this is next section, human response to grace, how we respond to grace. We fall in love with God and we are obedient because we are covered by Christ's righteousness. Obedience is not to get to heaven. Obedience is because we are saved. And you, if you truly understand doctrine, biblical doctrine of salvation, you are obedient not to get to heaven. You are obedient because you are in relationship with Christ. All right? That's basically the bottom line. You just... Christ writes the commandments on, the, on, on your heart, you know, uh, and, and that's, that's how it happened. Uh, I can just tell you a little example of, of, of this. Uh, we have two girls, and about four or five years ago, we were members of Pioneer Memorial Church in Berrien Springs, and it's a huge church. It used to have 6,000 members. Now with COVID, it kind of like destroyed that, that thing, but we had two services, and they were full and our Sabbath school that we led with my wife was 150 members. So there you go, a small Sabbath school. But uh, anyway, my girls were both, they were maybe 16 and 14, they were both members of youth group and so on. And one day after church, a youth leader comes to us and, and he says to us, Darius, your girls said something really strange. There's something really weird. 
Uh, and I was like, what did they say? Oh, <laughs> you know, well, here I'm a theologian of the university and my girls are spoiling my reputation. And I, just, uh, I don't worry about this, no. <laughs> but anyway, so he said, your girls said that there are no rules in your household. You, in your home, there's no, you don't have any rules. I said, what do you mean? That's what they said. We talked about what kind of rules children have in the house. And, um, and uh, your girls said, we don't have any rules. And they couldn't think of one. So what's going on in your house? You have house with no rules? Well, I can assure you, we had rules in our house. <laughs> and there were sometimes quite strict rules. Uh, one of them was no mobile phones in the bedroom, you know? Uh, so all kinds of rules. But the girls kind of, we have a good relationship with them, and they internalized the rules. And so they did not recognize that there were rules in the house. And they couldn't think of one, you know? Just because they loved us. We were in loving relationship. And that's what... That's what uh, uh, in Isaiah, uh, in Jeremiah 31, there is a, this statement that God will write his commandments where? On their hearts. And what does it mean? That means that we're obedient. We don't even know we are obedient. You know? If you know you're obedient, 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 that, that's, that's not on your heart. That's outside on tables somewhere, uh, two tables. When they're in your heart, you follow Christ. You're obedient because you're in love with Christ. Okay? So... Uh, so this is the, the document actually presented very nicely. And the last section was new status in Christ. When we respond to God's grace, we have new status in Christ. I encourage you, if you ever want to get a really solid grasp of Adventist understanding of salvation, get this document. Google it. 1980 Dynamics of Salvation General Conference. It was published in Adventist Review, distributed all around the world in that that year. This is the same year that Adventist Fundamentals, 27 Fundamentals at that stage were for the first time voted by the General Conference. So that document, in my opinion, represents Adventist turn to grace. See, we once again uh, put grace on a forefront of Adventist thinking. And today, Adventist movement is about God's grace. There are pockets that, that kind of don't understand, in my opinion, God's grace on, on both sides of the spectrum. I will talk about it in a moment. But in general, I think because of Christ's divinity, because of embrace of who Christ is as fully divine God, that God himself died for us on the cross, that's, that's, that's amazing thought, you know, that God died for us in the cross. And you can only do the true understanding of what happened if Christ is God. Otherwise, it does not make sense. We're going back to Greek philosophy. So, so the Trinitarian expression of faith is absolutely, um, we cannot deny it as Adventists because it would deny the whole doctrine of atonement and, and destroy Adventism. So I'm glad that we actually went this direction. And then Christ's righteousness. He covers us entirely. So we have new status in Christ. So, but there are dangers, okay? And that's, this is the, where I'm going to end this presentation. There are dangers for grace-oriented Adventism. The danger is that we'll take God's grace for granted. All right? If you, if you call yourself grace-oriented Adventist and you don't walk with Christ, then you don't know what grace is. You know, you just don't know. Grace just is a meaningless term. Then you, you say, I can do whatever I like. I'll go to heaven, whatever. It doesn't really matter what I do. Who I am, obedience doesn't matter. That simply tells me that a person like this does not know Christ. Because if you do know Christ... His commandments are going to be written on your heart. And then it just, God will work in you to be obedient. So it's not your work, it's Christ's work within, within you. So apathy, 
You know, if we treat this uh, God's grace as, as kind of like for granted, so to speak, if we just don't walk with Jesus, if he's not part of our daily life, then that it becomes kind of well, whatever. You know, it doesn't really matter. And we forget what Christ accomplished for us on the cross. So this is the danger for grace-oriented Adventism to always, like the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, fix your eyes on Jesus. You know, we must fix our eyes on Jesus. And so when he is part of our life, then, then we, can, we can really understand what grace is all about. The dangers for historic Adventism, uh, neglect of God's grace. Okay, it's a human-centered salvation, and people basically believe it's all about me. Okay, I have to uh, obey perfectly, and then Jesus Christ comes. So focus is on me, and focus is taken off from the cross of Christ. So we need to be careful not to take the gift of grace for granted by by basically departing from relationship with Christ, and we need to be careful not to uh, be, not to make a take Adventism back into legalistic kind of understanding of salvation. So this is the, in a nutshell, in one hour, the story of God's grace within Adventism.